This is a Federal News Network podcast. Lawmakers are asking tough questions of the Department of Veterans Affairs about a struggling IT project. And no, not this time on the new electronic health record. The House and Senate VA committee have growing concerns about VA's $2 billion program to modernize its medical supply chain management system. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about this emerging troubled program. Jason joins me now with the details. Jason, let's start with what VA is trying to do in the first place with the supply chain project. There's two goals for what VA is trying to do. Number one, they're trying to modernize their inventory management system. And to do that, they want to move to a defense logistics agency program called the Defense Medical Logistics Standards Support, which is the acronym is known as DIMLS. And they want to get off of their 30-year-old supply chain management system that is, you know, Tom probably built on COBOL or something like that. So they're going from 30 years old to 20 years old. Now that's the, the main IT project. The other piece of this is to move away from their current set of medical surgical contract providers. And they want to move to the, again, the DLA's existing contract vehicle. Now, currently, Tom, that effort to move to the new contract vehicle got squashed in the Court of Federal in the Court of Federal Claims earlier this in July. They were saying that basically VA just didn't follow the the acquisition rules and made some really bad choices, and basically they all but stopped that effort. And VA has promised to relook at their acquisition and go back for it. But really, the the piece that's causing more deep concern among lawmakers and industry is this move to the inventory management system. And I, I, th- I think that's that's a big, big concern because it's a $2 billion IT project. And Tom, we hear a lot about that electronic health records management project that's a $16 billion project. So that's the big gorilla in the, in the room. But but this $2 billion one is not a small one either. And the Congress is not happy with the way, the way it's going. No, and there are cases where VA has run out of certain supplies at certain facilities. So it does have a lot of impact on their operations to be able to manage their supply chain. And and what is the status right now of that program? VA and DLA reached an agreement back in, in April of 2019 to kind of collaborate and move toward uh, get VA on DIMLs. And so far, VA has only moved one medical center to DIMLs, this, uh, the Captain's James A. Lovell Federal Health Center in Chicago. And Todd Simpson says they still have uh, plans for the future. Todd is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. In July of 21, there was a a U.S. Court of Federal Claims decision that prevents the implementation of of DIMLs beyond Vision 20 and the Captain James A. Lovell Federal Health Care Center. We are planning a DIMLs deployment um, scheduled in Vision 20 during the mid-second quarter of 22. Our main focus with DIMLs is obviously to support the common core technologies that enable uh, a successful DIMLs implementation. Uh, we're focusing on a, um, a DIMLs cloud enclave uh, that is going to provide testing and training capabilities to practitioners and users. And, and that's really where um, most of our emphasis is right now um, in, our, in our DIMLs journey. That's Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps, talking about the move for to toward demos and the plan for the future. Now, Tom, what I'm hearing again from the the members is it's as much about the the idea of moving towards demos as it is this idea that what's taking so long, let's get going. And I think that that's where the concern is starting to lie. So it's expensive, $2 billion to move to an existing system. Sounds like it should not cost $2 billion. Maybe that's what the congressmen have in mind. And they're barely along with only one center then, correct? 
That is correct. And they have plans for a second one, as you heard Todd Simpson say, uh, later in 2022. But remember, there's, there's, you know, tens, there's dozens, there's hundreds of VA medical centers that will need this. And one of the concerns that the lawmakers have is they're going on-premise first and then to the cloud. Now, Tom, medical and surgical supplies, generally speaking, there is everyone has the same challenges, right? Do we have enough masks? Do you have enough gowns? Do you have enough of this type of, of, of tool, of that type of machine? So the, the members of Congress are asking, why are you moving on-premise first and not right to the cloud? And second, there is another cloud-based one being used by a government agency, the Defense Health Agency, called Logical. Why not move to that first and skip the entire DLA system, demos, and, and move right to the cloud? Or better yet, why not just move to a commercial system that's already being used in hospitals across the country? They don't really care which one, but they just seem like VA is, is taking extra time. They're taking extra effort for something that could not be in place till 2025 or beyond. And ranking... Um, well, it sounds basically then as if they are trading a 72 Ford Galaxy for a 87 Chevy Caprice. They're going to still have an old system. And by 2025, it'll be that much older. And I think that's the big concern from lawmakers. And Congressman Mark Takano, who's the chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, relayed his concerns at the hearing that happened back on September 30th. Modernizing VA supply chain system is a high priority for me. And it does not appear that things are going well with the supply chain system, even with the extra CARES money uh, that we provided. Uh, so I got to tell you that uh, failure to modernize the system is not an option. And I know that, uh, Dr. Evans, you're new to your position as acting CIO, but this is a priority. And I hope that you all will focus uh, in on it. And I realize that this is a, a long standing problem, but we've got to get our arms around it. Again, Congressman Mark DeCano, the chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, and the Dr. Evans he's referring to is now the acting CIO at VA, Dr. Neil Evans. And this is, Tom, just a, kind of an aside note that I'm actually also writing about in my notebook, is Dr. Evans now becomes the latest in a long line of acting CIOs. Since 2009, when our old friend Roger Baker got confirmed by the Senate as the CIO of the Veterans Affairs Department, they've had five, now six acting CIOs and only three permanent ones in the, in the last 11 years. And I think that's, that's another big concern for the committee. And that's how you end up with Dimmel's type systems, I guess, if nobody has a long-term stake in that. So does VA have any options at this point besides plowing through with Dimmel's? So I think VA can go in a couple of different directions because they have these other things like the Defense Health Agency's Logic Hall or some of the, the, the commercial systems, they could kind of pull the Band-Aid off and just give up on Dimmels and go, go in a different direction. Or they could relook at their this whole acquisition strategy because I think there's a lot of concern about it generally because of how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost. Whether or not they have a stomach for that is unclear. They, at the hearing, they didn't come out and say, we plan to go in a different direction or we plan to look at it. But if you look at what VA has done over the last you know, three, four, five years, Tom, they've really become a much more agile group focused on IT modernization efforts that are really focused on this, the veterans and the veterans caregivers. So it seems like Dimmels is stuck in the old way of thinking. It feels like Dimmels is the waterfall and, and VA has already moved a lot to DevSecOps. I mean, if you think about the telehealth services, they've made huge progress on telehealth services during the pandemic. They've moved to the cloud. Over 133 applications are now in the cloud, another 82 in progress. They've also are getting, trying to whittle down this about 400 in-house developed apps. 
and, and, and you know, kind of reduce custom development. So you're seeing a lot of changes that's happening. But again, it feels like certain things like demos is stuck in the past. And, and maybe it's time for them to really take a step back and say, is there a better way that can happen more quickly and it could cost less? And I, I think that's where Congress is trying to push them toward. Just think about it. Don't, you know, there's, we don't know what the right answer is, but this one does not seem like the correct one. And last week you reported in detail on the project, seven of them, one classified, that got that first $311 million in technology modernization fund money. This does not sound like the type of project that would be favorably viewed if they're moving from one older technology system to another older technology system. So this sounds like there's no chance for that coming to the rescue either. Well, we have no clue whether or not VA actually applied for some of the technology modernization fund, the billion-dollar windfall that Congress gave the fund uh, through the American Rescue Plan Act. But you're right. I think one of the, the challenges here is VA is going from a 30-year-old system to a 20-year-old system. That's not something I think OMB wants to promote as a way to, to modernization. And I think that's, again, I'll go back to why lawmakers are so concerned. And In fact, Tom, it's part of my story. We have a letter from both the Senate and the House Veterans Affairs Committee leadership to Michael Parrish, who's the chief acquisition officer and principal executive director for the Office of Acquisitions, Logistics and Construction at VA back in July, asking those same questions. What is your plan? What is your strategy? How are you going to plan to reduce waste? How, how are you going to get rid of unnecessary complexity? And it just seems like everything the VA is doing on the surface without really knowing the details, because I don't think we, we know that there are details. We don't know too many details currently. It seems like that they're setting themselves up for big, major challenges and problems. And Tom, something to look forward to, there is going to be a hearing on this Dimmels project come November. Uh, that's uh, according to the committee. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his reporter's notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? 
my style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, 
um, from C to C-suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.